Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi there and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I listen to heaps of great stories from all around the world and share the best of them with you. Coming up today, 11 cities and one simple question. I was just wondering, where are you going? Then exploring our sometimes troubled relationship with technology in the digital human. Last night when I was working, I did a delivery where I didn't even have to leave the building because the customer lived above the restaurant in a flat. So people are fine to order and have me, like, walk about 30 seconds and deliver it. Beyond Kate marks the 125th anniversary of the suffrage petition, the decision to let women in New Zealand vote. After all the signatures were gathered, they were mailed back to Kate Shepherd in Christchurch at her home in Rickerton, and she and her colleagues there glued all of the sheets together and wound them around a segment of a broom handle and made this big roll, which is the roll that you see now. And the famous rapper Prodigy was one half of the influential US East Coast rap duo Mob Deep. He was also badly affected by sickle cell anemia. The Realness charts the story of his life and death. That record would help define a generation of hip-hop in the mid-90s. If you listen to the first track, it's called The Start of Your Ending. You can hear how they have totally reworked their sound. How an inherited blood disease influenced the course of hip-hop history. That's all coming up on the podcast hour. And if you've heard anything good recently, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, and I'll be featuring your recommendations on future shows. It sounds like such a simple idea. Go to a city and then start up conversations with random passing strangers by asking them one question. Where are you going? And because of the open-ended nature of the question and the disarming nature of the person asking it, people do seem to open up. And the series called Where Are You Going? can take you off in all sorts of unexpected directions. I started listening to it first a couple of years ago when the series opened in New York and Amsterdam, and since then, host Catherine Cars visited a total of 11 cities, with the latest season covering Southeast Asia. She spends a few days in each place, records heaps of material, then edits it all down to about 26 minutes. I'll speak to Catherine in just a minute about how she does it, but first, let's head to Hanoi in Vietnam. We are going to the Temple of Literature to um, pray for the best score in the, our upcoming exam. You nervous? 
Yes, we are all very nervous because uh, it is one of the most important exam of our life. How old are you? We are 18. Okay. So after this exam, does that help you go to university? Or? Yes, it's that kind of exam. What do you want to do when you're grown up? I'm going to study in uh, electronic mechanical, designing the, uh, the robots. Oh. What do you think about robotics and technology? Do you think it's a good thing? Definitely. Uh, I think it is one of the, the most important thing in our future. Does it feel exciting to be 18 and then you're going to start work and it's going to be all technology, robots, AI, everything cool? The exciting thing about being 18 is not only uh, just technology and robots, it's our new experience about being an, an actually grown-up people, like uh, an adult, and I can uh, be, be free. I can take responsibility to my own the things I'm going to do in the future. What kind of adult do you think you'll be? <laughs> what, what do you mean? What kind of person do you want to be when you're grown up? I know you want to work with technology, but all oh, the thunder. <laughs> um, but what kind of person do you want to be? The person I want to be is I. I want to travel around the world. I want to be the um, a global citizen. You want to people. leave Vietnam? Not not that kind of leave, but I I want to travel and I can come back to Vietnam anytime I want. So. Where do you want to go? To Canada, to Europe. Your friends are helping. <laughs> <laughs> what did they say? <laughs> they say Dubai. Why Dubai? Because they are very rich. <laughs> Do you want to be rich? I uh, rich, but enough, not too much. So when you go and pray at the literature yes. temple, what prayer do you say? Well, actually, the they will do all things, and all we have to do is to listen and uh, to uh, do the hands like this, and they hit the drum and the bell. And do you believe it will help? <laughs> I think that it is just the more we pray, I think we will gain luckiness. On the other hand, we will also have to try our best to do the exam. Why are you putting that microphone on my mouth? So that you can speak and then I can listen. I want to know where are you going today? Where am I going? Um, it's almost time. I'm going to my grandparents' house. Yeah. What are you going to do at your grandparents' house? Mm, I am gonna. I'm gonna live there now, and then for a while, all the time when finish like living there, I'm gonna go back on my auntie's house and just for five. Days and then I'm gonna go to another country to the Philippines. 
Is that where you're from? Yes, I study there and then when I finish I go back here. I live in my auntie's house again and then I go again on my grandparents' house, then on my auntie's house again, then I go back. It all goes like that. And what about your mum? Uh, that's complicated to say. So you travel a lot? Yes. Do you like travelling? Of course. What do you like about travelling? Uh, it's like exploring. The, the most excited thing is the airplane because it's so high. But the thing is I don't like to go on night time. It's very dangerous and even, uh, I don't know. How old are you? Seven. You seem very mm, grown up for seven. Yeah. What do you want to be when you're grown up? When I'm a what? When you're an adult. Hmm? A pilot, of course. I told you already. I told you that my favorite traveling planes. So I will try to make it, but it's gonna be very hard for that college. Hmm. You already know it's gonna be hard. Yeah. Are you a good student? Do you work hard? Uh, no. Are you a bit cheeky? I don't know. <laughs> what do your teachers say about you? I'm just top eight, sorry. You're just what? Top eight. Top eight? Well, that's good. No, the good one is top one. So, going to your grandma's, then your auntie's, then the Philippines. But today, we're going to close now and going to my grandparents' house. Do you like staying with your grandparents? You want to stay? <laughs> Thank you. I would like to stay, but I've got work to do. Do you like staying there? Uh, yeah, of course. Is your grandma kind? Not really. Especially my daddy. He's always... <laughs> Sorry. Is your dad in Vietnam? Uh, my dad is right on the Philippines, on the other country. Hmm, your life is complicated. I told you! Up and down avenues, flags flutter outside busy shops and the air is full of the delicious smell of food. I was just wondering where you're going. Oh, mind, mind yourself in the car. Hi, I'm going home. <laughs> I'll go to my hopes. I uh, just uh, buy a um, meal for baby. Uh, for your baby? Yes. Uh, how old? Is he uh, eight months? Oh. Yeah. What's his name? One baby is Nam. Nam. Oh. Yeah. Is it quite hard work? Hard work? Yeah, like tiring with a baby. Yes, very tired. <laughs> <laughs> Does your mum help or your family? Uh, I wish my body help me uh, take the care of baby, but nobody. It's because it's my family is very busy. Yeah. That's difficult. Yeah. So every day, you and the baby? Yes, every day. 
Do you have friends with babies? No. Uh, oh. Nobody. Nobody. Now friend, now family. It's only me. Are you sad or happy? Very sad. Very stressed. Something my husband take care for my baby. Uh, he's very angry, and my baby very, very, very cries. My baby very cries, and my husband very angry. Look, and I very tired. Every day, every day I take care of babies and I two baby. Two? Yes, because I have twin baby. Twins. Oh my goodness. Uh, excuse me. I finish because I am very my babies uh, cries. The Hanoi edition of Where Are You Going? with Catherine Carr, produced by Joe Coombs of Loftus Media for the BBC World Service. And I spoke to Catherine via Skype to ask her all about that all-important central question. I think the genius thing about the question is everybody can answer it. Because if you're in transit and you're walking somewhere or cycling somewhere, you are going somewhere, whether it's just to the shops or just to post a letter or whatever it is. So it's not like a dreaded vox pop which journalists are sent out to do where they ask about what do you think about the new announcement from the government and people think i don't know what to say to that i don't i don't have an answer everyone's got an answer and then beyond the actual journey that they're physically undertaking when i stop and interrupt them you know they've left something behind like work or kids or an argument with their spouse or a surprise birthday breakfast whatever it is and then they're on the way somewhere else and there's so many stories that you can unpick from where they've been, what they're thinking about on the way and where they're going. But it's it's such a rich smorgasbord of personal detail. You could get anything, I think, if you played your cards right. And the genius of interrupting people as a stranger on a journey is you're actually accessing something that counsellors and psychotherapists notice a lot, which is in the last five minutes of a session, often a client will come out with the big secret and tell their counsellor, oh, you know, and and that's when it happened, that's when she left me, or that's when my heart broke. Because they're safe, they know that they're just about to leave, and they don't really have to deal with the consequences. So in this kind of fleeting moment of anonymity but intimacy, it's like people are really free, and they feel this opportunity to unburden or share or celebrate or cry, and then I'm gone. And they, they can move on. And I think it's, I hope it's a nice experience for them as well. I, I definitely never push until someone's angry. And I always go away knowing that they were happy telling me what they told me. And I like to think that there's something sort of magical about that little pocket of intimacy that we share. Do lots of people tell you to get lost, though? Or do you have to kind of cope with rejection much? Weirdly, no. In the last series I did in East Asia, we went to Seoul, Hanoi and... Tokyo. That was the trickiest, I think, partly culturally. There's not such a culture of sharing, but also language was more of an issue. And there's a humbleness around people's ability to speak English. 
So that was harder because people said, no, 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 my English isn't very good. And actually, five minutes later, it turned out their English was great. But a lot of people's English isn't that great. And that was a barrier. But everywhere else, the rejection rate is so low. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. I don't. I think I must have had about three or four absolutely don't talk to me in the whole time I've been doing it. That must be something about you then, because I go. I've gone out and done Vox on the street, and no shortage of people telling me, "No, no, I don't want to." Talk. There must be something about you, very open and approachable, that people respond to. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm very tall, so people joke that I'm oh, physically intimidating. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I dress really, not purposefully, but a little bit purposefully, quite drab. So I look. I'm not sort of dressed up. I don't look threatening. I'm in jeans and trainers and a boring t-shirt and. I do have a kind of way of often falling into step with people. So that I have got better at is the physical kind of ballet of it. You know, spotting someone that I want to talk to and doing a little manoeuvre and ending up next to them without them realising. But, you know, I'm just asking them where they're going. So if they say, you know what, really busy, I'm going to visit my grandma, I haven't seen her for three weeks, and then they genuinely have to go, that's cool, but they told me. I was interested in how you chose the people to talk to. Did you find yourself pre-selecting for certain people or did you try and keep it very random? It really messes with your head because, especially in New York, that was like the uber crazy place where I had this feeling that every single person had something great to say and I just never sat down for hours and hours and hours every day. And then when people gave me answers that weren't great, I got kind of paranoid that the really interesting people were in Soho or like at Central Park. And I would spend three hours walking there because I was sure I'd just picked the wrong part of town. And then it does kind of mess with your head because you're searching, searching, searching for really good stories. The truth is everybody's got a really good story. It's just how good you are at getting it out of them. That said... Some people give off a very much like don't even bother vibe. Like really don't bother. And I tend not to go up to those people. And some people you can just tell they're going to, oh, they make eye contact with you, they're inviting it. And I tend to try and keep them to the minimum because I don't just want show-offs. I do want some people that I've had to seduce and draw out and it's a bit of a game in a way. As to whether it's entirely random, it can't be. But that said, you know, we ask so many people and then we end up with just 23, 26 minutes. So we lose so many stories. I can't tell you the heartbreak of the lost stories that just end up, I don't know, in a digital bin somewhere that are just wonderful but didn't fit. Which is down to, sometimes it's down to how long they were or how well the, the accent came across perhaps when you're listening to it in the studio or what was the background noise going on. There's a lot of random and quite chance things that could exclude great stories, isn't there? Yeah, or, you know, without being too artificial, you want to give the listener a really full experience. So the soundscape is as important as the stories. You really want to give people this kind of audio slice of a city. So you can't use eight minutes of audio on a story which is quite similar to a really great story that's only two minutes long. So sometimes you just think, Damn, that, you know, we can't use it. There was a great one in New York, this wonderful, sad man 
who told the story of holding his lover as she died in his arms. And they'd been girlfriend and boyfriend and then been separated by life and then got back together again. She walked into a video store where he worked. She ended up with cancer and she was quite ravaged by the disease. And he had this great New York accent and he was standing by this this train in Brooklyn that came and went and came and went. And it kept coming at these times when he was saying something really intimate. Didn't make it worse. It made it better because he had to sort of shout, you know, she died in my arms. And, you know, it was just this incredible juxtaposition of shouting something so private but we couldn't make it shorter we just couldn't and it was too long for the episode but it still breaks my heart that that story wasn't told is that one of the stories that sticks in your memory yeah you know it's funny we have a photographer that comes with us now but even before we did I just have to hear a couple of seconds from a program or even from a story that we lost and I can conjure up that person's face almost immediately it's such a kind of locked eyes imprinting intimate kind of bubble that you you go into it feels like everything else is going on around you people are coming and going and doing their own journeys and you've just stopped and in that moment you're just sharing and then they go and I I can call them all to mind there's a man in Calcutta who was dying of AIDS and he was on this sort of self-made pilgrimage, visiting all these little churches in this part of the city that meant something to him. And then he wanted to pray, so we ended up standing on this street corner. And, you know, I can I can see him. I can see the way that his mouth moved now when I think about it. Has it changed the way that you travel or that you walk around a city? Like, you know, whether you're at home or, or when you go overseas, are your radars out? Are you looking at people in a slightly different way? Uh, sometimes I think, oh, this is really nice. I don't have to spoil <laughs> this weekend by getting my microphone out and feeling really conspicuous because, let's face it, sometimes real anonymity is really nice. But the thing that's a real privilege is you go to a city for three days maximum is how long I'm there. And in those three days, I get sometimes to see lovely things because I might walk past them or go and have a look for half an hour or something. But I get to talk to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who live in that city. And it's like I always think doing an MRI of a city. So in Seoul, you end up with kind of lovely kids going to college and stressed businessmen and K-pop fans. And, you know, somehow these people arrange themselves into my program. So you've got this kind of amazing slice through all the layers of the city. And I've had a chance to talk to all these people. So even when I go to a city and I feel relieved that I don't have to get my microphone out and talk, I also feel a bit robbed that I'm only getting the surface of a city. Whereas when I do this programme, I really feel like I get underneath the skin a bit of it for that period of time. Catherine Carr, and sorry about the quality of that slightly patchy Skype line. You can find links to all those 11 cities she's visited for Where Are You Going on our website right now. That's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. The digital human explores our sometimes troubled relationship with technology and how it's changing our lives. In each episode, a one-word topic, for example, echo, secrets, memory, isolation, chance, gets explored. 
and its host, the writer and academic Alex Krotowski, weaves together personal stories, history and analysis with a smart script. And make no mistake, it's us humans, our stories, our quirks, our behaviour that takes centre stage and not the technology. The show also likes making surprising connections between seemingly unrelated things. Friction looks at what could be lost in our seemingly endless quest for a carefree, frictionless life, starting on a rock face with someone who relies on friction pretty heavily to stay alive, mountaineer Andy Kirkpatrick. Climbers are always uh, focused on the most, the most friction you can get from the rock because they're using their feet and their hands to climb up the rock. Yeah, without friction, you're out of there. Once you feel what you're actually trying to do, you just engage with it second by second by second rather than looking up at this thing that's like a 1,000 metres high and just contemplating the whole height of it. The bigger the drop, the bigger the thrill. Maybe it's like knitting or something, I don't know. Like, you're not thinking about the whole jump, you're just thinking about the, the stitch or something. In praise of friction. For the rest of us, the friction in our lives comes from all of those little pain points in our day. Those stupid, menial tasks that seem like a waste of our precious time. You know, the ones that we do everything we can to eliminate so we can get what we want when we want it. Like a pizza. Or something tasty from the posh restaurant downstairs. Last night when I was working, I did a delivery where I didn't even have to leave the building because the customer lived above the restaurant in a flat. So people are fine to order and have me, like, walk about 30 seconds and deliver it. Now that person has a low tolerance for friction. You know, the idea of frictionlessness, because it's coming from a very kind of, you know, a technological perspective. If we can take away the friction, then everybody's life will be better. It doesn't consider the idea that, you know, there are times where we need a lot of friction to stop, pause, reflect, grow, have an epiphany. And it's that balance we're looking for in this episode. I am conflicted about giving myself over to this modern frictionless lifestyle. It's tricky, especially when you live with somebody who is all in for the promise of this digital utopia. At home, we have phone-controlled door locks, voice-activated lights, apps that serve only one need to deliver pizza, apps for college students to come and get my post, to come and put things into storage, and then to bring them back out again. But I have a nagging feeling that by using them, I may be losing out on something I can't quite put my finger on. Follow and comment on the program with the hashtag DigiHuman. The lifestyle we're talking about is characterized by hyper-efficiency, and like the tools that we use to achieve it, it originated in Silicon Valley, but it has been exported all over the world. Efficiency is the worship word for Silicon Valley culture. It is the organizing principle by which people rationalize and presumably organize their lives. Jan English Lewick is professor of anthropology at San Jose State University. Efficiency in eating, efficiency in the way you move people around in families. When I followed a working family, one of the things that really struck me is children would be stationed at particular points. So the least amount of time would be spent with uh, exit and entrance. 
So one of the things I've been thinking about Silicon Valley for a long time is that it's a kind of bellwether. It's an early warning signal. They've exported the technologies that they developed, imagining those are what improves quality of life. And as those technologies have been exported into people's lives, it just takes over. It's just that those tools are so damn seductive. So even if you're not one of the elites that are crafting our digital futures, you can pretend to be carried aloft on a digital cushion by a virtual entourage. Well, as long as you can shout at Alexa or whatever digital personal assistant of your choice to order another jar of chocolate spread. You know, the sort of things that our parents used to take care of. My name is Omer Huck. I've been an economist. I've been in advertising. You know, one of the things that has become very obvious over the last few years is that, you know, a huge amount of money is pouring in to what many people will call kind of I want my mommy apps. They replace the things that uh, a very coddled uh, frat boy here in the States would like to have provided for him, right? So the things that will kind of do your laundry or deliver your food or, you know, even get you a date. You know, the question is, you know, does that kind of reduce us to an almost infantile state, right? Because the point of an infantile state is to pursue that kind of instant gratification, right? Baby wants his bottle, baby wants his blankie, baby wants his pacifier. And as long as we can satisfy those appetites at the lowest cost, then we have served the greater good. Oh, for heaven's sake, give me a break, Umer. I'm just trying to get through my day friction from the digital human. Meanwhile, Sin Eaters looks at the life of the content moderator. They're the people responsible for looking at some of the most horrible stuff on the internet, so we don't have to. This is academic Sarah Roberts from UCLA, who's been studying these undervalued jobs for about the past eight years. I started asking people around me, hey, have you ever heard of this? And that included people who were specialists in internet studies. Each one said, No, I never thought of that. Don't computers do that? Even today, these are issues that cannot just be programmed away. Whatever you might have heard, artificial intelligence is nowhere near being able to understand what might make a comment hate speech or an image distressing. It takes human decisions. Even when those decisions are at scale, And when they're under extreme pressure of productivity metrics that speed them up almost, but not quite, to the point of it seeming like an automated process. We had a quota. We had to oftentimes go through at least 1,200 images a day. A lot of the accounts that are sharing these images, they're all getting them from the dark web because you see the same images over and over and over again. Everybody was kind of missing this issue, but it became clear to me that that was a bit by design. Those platforms that required this kind of adjudication were loath to discuss it. There are a couple reasons why this is the case. First, platforms don't want their upstanding digital citizens to know about the filth that they accidentally host by dint of their success. Second, Even hinting at a filtering process is like a red rag to the people who would delight in circumventing it. But what it also does is leave those striving away in the shadows largely unacknowledged and certainly underappreciated. The very first content moderator I ever interviewed, she described herself as a sin eater. 
you know, the notion of eating the sin in that case really went a bit beyond metaphor for her in the sense that in, in deleting these comments or in adjudicating them in any kind of way was to also receive them and also to take them on board. We've mentioned sin eaters several times already in this program, but we might be making an assumption about your knowledge. Okay, so what was sin eating? And as we are predicating our entire thesis on a comparison between then and now, who were the people who did it? I'm Dr. Helen Frisbee of the Folklore Society. When a person had died, relatives would get in a a professional sin eater and the sin eater would receive some bread and quite often salt and also sometimes drink over the body and then symbolically ingest the sins of the dead person. They would be paid a small amount for this service and then having been relieved of their sins, the, the dead person could then go on comfortably into the afterlife. And what thanks did they get? I think they would have had a very ambivalent relationship with the communities they served. That's very much the case, I think, with with all occupations where somebody has been paid to take on that sort of social and moral and emotional baggage that, that all societies have. We don't like them, but we can't live without them. Oftentimes out at lunch, you'd see people kind of like glance at your badge. It's a thing in Silicon Valley is every company has badges to get in. And ours were a separate color and you would see people look at the color and then walk away. Oh, they also, uh, we had our desks sort of surrounded by bushes at one point so that no one could see our screens. I'd say we we were bottom of the pile in the Bay Area. From what we know of the Sin Eaters, they would have lived on the margins of the community um, and they were often recorded as being poor, often disreputable. And I think there are some interesting questions in there about whether people become sin eaters because they're poor and they need to make a living or whether it's something people actively choose to become. And I think the answer is probably a bit of both in there. Content moderation has typically been thought of as less important, something of an afterthought uh, vis-a-vis the other primary goals of platforms to roll out the latest technology and the best functionality. All you have to do is think about the headlines, the outrage when just one little thing slips through the net. A beheading video, an image of exploitation, abuse of any kind. Their job is vital, but we treat them like second-class citizens. Sin Eaters from the BBC's The Digital Human, presented by Alex Krotoski and produced by Peter McManus for the BBC. And thanks to Kate Bissell for her help. I've also enjoyed episodes recently called Silence, Unnoticed and Shame, if you want to check those out. Hundred and twenty-five years ago, New Zealand became the first country in the world to give women the vote. In Beyond Kate, RNZ's Sonia Sly tells the story of how this momentous decision was reached and reviews its legacy today. In the process, she also uncovers some of the personal histories of the 25,000-plus women who put their names to the suffrage petition presented to Parliament in 1893. And about that petition, it's hundreds of metres long and it's stored in carefully controlled conditions alongside the original Treaty of Waitangi in Hetohu, the National Library in Wellington. 
Just to clarify, this is the third attempt to get a suffrage petition over the line. The first and second were sent through to Parliament in 1891 and 92 respectively, but Kate Shepherd and her volunteers weren't prepared to sit back and take no for an answer. Lucky for us. Kate Shepard was the organiser of the petition and she had a friend who was a printer and she had him print out the sheets and you can see they're quite long, they're about 60 centimetres long each and they're quite narrow as well. But they've got a column for uh, one signature and then a column for the address and so these were sent out all over the country for women to gather signatures and as soon as the 1892 suffrage petition had done its job of supporting the bill that went through Parliament that didn't make it all the way to getting the legislation passed for women to get the vote. Kate Shepard and her colleagues in the Women's Christian Temperance Union knew that they needed to act really fast if they wanted to um, you know, keep up the momentum. They were determined, and that's because... 1893 was an election year, and so they knew that if they didn't get the, the legislation over the line that year, there'd be at least three more years to wait. Each sheet has the prayer at the top to the Honourable Speaker and the members of the House of Representatives. The petition of the undersigned women of the age of 21 years and upwards, resident in the colony of New Zealand, humbly shoot. So they sprang into action in mid-1892, got these sheets printed. She sent these out all over the country in time for the summer holidays so that women could take them to the places where they holidayed so that they'd be even better reached, not only to the cities and the towns of New Zealand, but out to the rural places and the beaches where we go on our summer holidays. Come rain or shine. The document is over a century old, but considering its history, it's not in bad shape. So the main damage it's suffered is pretty minor and it's just from being rolled and unrolled. There's lots of ink blots and I think those are really interesting and that sort of speaks to the chaos of its creation because these sheets were carried all around the place and people gathered signatures by knocking on doors, by collecting signatures out in public. And after all the signatures were gathered, they were mailed back to Kate Shepherd in Christchurch at her home in Rickerton and she and her colleagues there glued all of the sheets together and wound them around a segment of a broom handle and made this big roll, which is the roll that you see now. There are thousands of names on the petition, but one sits right at the top. The very first name is Mary Jane Carpenter. I took a trip down to Christchurch to meet up with her great-grandson, Peter Aitken, and his wife, Margaret. So her headstone is... which one? Oh, no! It's completely toppled to the ground which also happened to her husband's headstone too as a result of the Christchurch earthquake. That's my grandfather and Mary Jane Carpenter. Now, the headstones would otherwise have been in pristine condition, so it's a little heartbreaking. There was initially the, the stone was put up for George Frederick and, and later had Mary Jane's inscription. How old was Mary when he married her? 21. 22. She came out in 1870 and on the ship's record she's listed as a domestic servant. Was she educated? What was her kind of trajectory? As a general servant she would not have been well educated. She might have been able to read and write. Mm. I mean, Do you think that they ended up getting married because they were kind of in the same area? Or? Probably. But I think single women in the 1870s coming out to a male-dominated colonial society was snapped up fairly quickly. You've seen pictures of her, 
Have yes. you? Yes. Would you say she was an attractive woman? No. Like, no? <laughs> <laughs> she, <laughs> we, we could turn off the, the oh, no, recordings for this. No, that's hilarious. <laughs> but she is rather butch-looking. Really? Yes. And this is Peter's wife, Margaret. She looks manly. Her face is not attractive. Well, her features may have been decimated by having seven children, and the photograph we have has got seven kids with her. We don't know. She may have been uh, rather sylph-like and uh, very attractive in her younger days. Now, I'll just mention here that I also asked Peter what Mary Jane's husband looked like too. Peter tells me he was a lean man with a beard, and Mary Jane was actually his second wife after his first wife passed away. His first wife was uh, Frances Chapman. She died very early. He clearly wasn't wasting any time and snapped Mary Jane up quick smart. It turns out that she'd come to New Zealand with two brothers and a sister and her dad, a blacksmith. Her father, who was 50 at the time, which I thought was a bold venture, they lived out at Yuldhurst initially and then moved to Rickerton. The father was a blacksmith, is that right? Yes, or boiler maker or mechanic. He's a person who did repairs with ironwork. Mary Jane Carpenter and her husband, George Frederick, were farming folk. This area here is, a lot of it is shingle. It's not all that good for farming. This area is probably all right, but a lot of it is on shingle fans and it's very prone to drought. So they would have also experienced that themselves? Yes, 260 acres they had, but I would imagine they cropped and had sheep. Once she got married, they worked on the farm, and yes. I mean, surely she's like this robust, sort of strong woman who formidable. That's that's how I would describe her, and she must have been because to be proactive on women's rights or seeking uh, women's vote, and also being a staunch uh, Methodist and advocate for temperance, you had to have a fair bit of guts to be able to uh, stand up and and pose those sorts of. Uh, proposition so. How was it do you think that she ended up as being first on the actual role? There was a group of people, I mean Kate Shepherd lived in Rickerton and there was a, a sort of, dare I say it, a coven. <laughs> <laughs> now Peter let's try that one again. <laughs> there was a group of women who were all first signed up and they came from Yaldhurst, Rickerton, Hornby. So they're in this area. Oh right so it's she my... would have had like that direct kind of contact with her. Yes, mm. yeah. She would have known Kate Shepard quite well. Peter Aitken speaking to RNZ's Sonia Sly in the first episode of Beyond Kate. And you can find the whole episode online now at rnz.co.nz. New episodes will be released each week for the next seven weeks and you can listen to it on Standing Room only every Sunday after the 3pm news or you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. The rapper Prodigy and his collaborator Havoc came to prominence in the 1990s as the influential US rap duo Mob Deep with songs like Shook Ones Part 2 and their classic 1995 album The Infamous. But Prodigy also suffered from sickle cell anemia. That's an inherited blood disorder that affects more than 4 million people worldwide. Prodigy died from complications related to the disease in June 2017. And in The Realness from WNYC, host and health reporters Mary Harris and Christopher Johnson look at the impact of sickle cell on Prodigy's life and on Mob Deep's music. 
Their first album, called Peer Pressure, had bombed and they got dropped by their record label, so Mob Deep had to totally reinvent themselves for their second album. They decided to start over, and what they came up with, man, this album, the infamous, that record would help define a generation of hip-hop in the mid-'90s. If you listen to the first track, it's called The Start of Your Ending. You can hear how they have totally reworked their sound. It's a total 180 from what they were doing before. It's slowed down. It sounds composed. It's gorgeous. It's Mob Deep's second album, but a lot of people think of it as their first one. Including Even, Prodigy. Yeah, Prodigy sometimes just refers to it as their first album. The music on Juvenile Hell sounds like a lot of other hip-hop out at the time, but the music on The Infamous, even today, nothing sounds like The Infamous. They changed, they made, they made the music dark. When I on their beats, I say, damn, the light went out. What happened? Oh, my God. It, it just became dark and, like, really gritty. And it was like, yo, I want to hear this. And we- this is one of the first hosts of a show called Yo! MTV Raps Today. This is Dr. Dre. Also known as A.K.A. Wonka Dre, also known as Big Daddy Original Concept Dre, also known as... I don't have all those A.K.A.s. I'm just joking. So, like Dre says, yeah, the music was dark, but, man, it was also electric. This is another track from the infamous album. It's called Eye for an Eye. And when this stuff played in the club, it just made people feel some kind of way. Oh, man, you want to start beating and fighting your boy and grabbing and jumping around. Yo, this is that thing, yo. And women started feeling themselves. You started going, yo, yo. It was a different thing. But it also sounded like they were kind of rejecting all of that bouncy energy from juvenile hell. Other rappers were having fun with their music. But having a prodigy, they had, they had vocals where, like I said, it was almost like they turned the light out of the room and you were like, yo, I want to hear this. And the smoke started filling up around you. That's the, that was the vibe you guys like, yo, this is something dull. This is, this is mob deep. <laughs> and when you compare the infamous with their first record, part of what changed their sound was sickle cell. The big thing about uh, Juvenile Hell is, production-wise, Prodigy was more the producer. This is Scott Jacobs again. He says Prodigy's disease flipped the roles that P and Hav had in the group. When they started out, Hav was doing a lot of the writing. So Havoc was doing a little ghostwriting for P, yo, 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 you know, say it like this, say it like that, whatever, whatever. Go back, listen to the Prodigy's flow. It's, it's very animated. It's very excited. And that's, that's basically Havoc. Now, when they were making The Infamous, Prodigy was getting sick the same way he always did. So what happens is Havoc is home, right? But any background for any, any kind of thoughts or ideas always stem from the music first. He's having to go to the hospital for hardcore pain relief. He's doped up. He's on morphine. So what's Havoc supposed to do? Wait for P to get home in order to start writing? So Havoc starts to learn how to program the machines. And Prodigy, who's spending most of his time on his back, right, starts writing more. And Scott Jacobs tells a story about asking P about, hey, Why'd you change your flow? Why'd you change your style? He was like, yo, I was just laying in the hospital, man. You know, I was all numbed up. 
And, you know, I was like, rather than get all excited or whatever, he said, I'm going to just talk to these niggas. And that's going to be my style. So this is where it happens, the way that he stepped to the mic. Ill, slowed down, plain spoken flow, the one that hip-hop fans came to know even when Prodigy sampled on other people's music. It came from Sickle Cell. Episode one of The Realness called This Sunny Day Right Here, hosted by Mary Harris and Christopher M. Johnson for WNYC Studios. And that's about it from me and the podcast hour from now. Just a reminder, you've been listening to Where Are You Going? The Digital Human, Beyond Kate and The Realness. So from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.